John chapter 6, beginning at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Very truly I say to you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. An interesting collection of statements on the part of Jesus. Notice that he is speaking in response to their remarks. They made remark about the manna in the wilderness. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And notice Jesus' response in verse 32. Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Now let's think about that for just a minute. What was the manna? The very word mana means what is it? They named it that stuff. That what is it stuff. The what is it that came down out of heaven. They didn't know what it was. But they knew that it was good to eat. They knew that it was sustenance for the body, physical sustenance. They knew that it's provided them with at least part of what they needed to live and to survive 
in the wilderness. In other words, God provided for them, for them physically, with the what-is-it stuff, with the manna from heaven. You notice Jesus says, it's not Moses who gave you the manna, the what-is-it stuff. It was the Father in heaven, and it's the Father in heaven who gives you the true bread from heaven. Were they insinuating that, Jesus, or that Moses provided it? Well, the general understanding amongst the Israelites is that Moses gave us the manna in the wilderness. It came from God, yes, but Moses was their intermediary with God. So he played an important role there. And Jesus contradicts that only slightly when he says, it's he who gives you the true bread of heaven now that gave you that bread, that manna, that what is it stuff in the wilderness. But now you're getting true bread from heaven. Interesting juxtaposition. The what is it stuff is one thing. It's a kind of bread. It's a kind of sustenance. But now he's saying you're getting true bread of heaven. Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. One possible translation would be, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Hmm? That's what Shira says? For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's making a statement. It's not a thing like the what is it stuff. It's an actual person. The bread of heaven is a person. They didn't catch that, however. They didn't understand that. Instead, they replied, Sir, give us this bread always. He is going to be identifying, he is identifying himself here as the bread of heaven. They were following him because they got to eat their fill of loaves. They wanted miracle. They wanted magic, actually. They wanted what he could give them. They wanted signs to prove that he is a rabbi and a speaker for God. They wanted magic sustenance, like the what is it bread in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not magic bread. It's the true bread of heaven. It's not the stuff, the what is it stuff you got in the wilderness. It's the true bread of heaven that will fill you eternally. For the bread of God, for the bread of of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not temporary sustenance like the manna, the what is it bread did in the wilderness, but life to the world. Jesus said to them, begin, continuing at verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, this is one of those powerful I am statements. And in English, we miss it. But we may remember when 
Moses was encountered by Yahweh at the burning bush. And he said, Who am I to say is sending me to deliver the Israelites out of captivity? If they ask me who has sent me to deliver the Israelites, who am I to say? And Yahweh's response was, I am that I am. And he ain't Popeye. He says, I am that I am. And the word, the name, Yahweh, means exactly that. I am. I am the one who is and cannot not be. I am the one who is and by his very nature exists. I am the rock bed ontological substance of all existence. It's like saying I am it would be similar to identifying yourself or himself with the atom, that from which all of the things are created or built upon. I am. I am the one who is and who cannot not be. He cannot not exist. By very nature he exists. All right? And I am going to be known. I am, I exist, and I am the one who will be known. That's the meaning of the word Yahweh. I am and I will be known. Jesus, beginning with this passage right here, identifies himself directly with that very proclamation of Yahweh through the burning bush to Moses. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, if he's not God, if he's not the, in, the physical incarnation of God, if he is not Yahweh in human flesh, then to say that is total and complete and utter blasphemy. It's insanity. It would be like if I were to stand here and say, I am your eternal life and eternal sustenance. You cannot, be, you cannot live eternally without me. You need me. If I were to... You're backing away. <laughs> if I were to say that and mean it, and Jesus means it here, if I were to say that, it would be just as ludicrous as this was sounding to the Israelites. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, he's it. You don't need anybody but, as I said this morning, you don't need anybody but Jesus if he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we think about hungering and thirsting in the physical sense here. But that's not what he means. He's not meaning your stomach's never going to grumble and your, your throat's never going to be parched. He doesn't mean that. He means spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. He means the hungering and thirsting for eternal life. He means... The, the, the need for spiritual sustenance. 
You're never going to be lacking in eternal things. You're never going to be lacking in sustenance for worship and religious and spiritual life. He is the source of all of that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice, it's focused directly upon himself and their response to him. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever approaches me comes to me, and whoever believes in me. The coming and the believing are stated in an interesting parallelism which reminds me of the Jewish parallelism in poetry where they would often say, and we see this all the time in the Psalms, where they say the same thing a slightly different way and they say it twice. What they're doing is they're emphasizing the reality of whatever it is they're saying. God is a strong rock, a castle to keep me safe is a classic Hebraic dualism where you have the strong rock is one concept for God, a castle to keep me safe is another concept for God. They are related concepts, both articulating, communicating the same idea. You almost have that here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay? But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Wow. You've seen me, but you don't believe. No wonder you're thirsty. You don't believe. You've seen me. You really haven't come to me then. And you don't believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. You don't have to be worried about Jesus saying no to you. If you are coming truly thirsty, truly desiring that which He provides, truly coming to receive the grace that He wants to give on His terms, not yours, you don't have to worry about Him saying no. If you are coming, you're not going to want to come unless He you are being sent by the Father, you're not going to want to come unless you're being drawn. But if you are coming, if you're coming to receive the sustenance, the bread of life, you don't have to worry about being pushed away, no matter what you've done. That's the nature of grace. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven. Now right there, I mean, he's saying he's come down from heaven. What else came down from heaven? The, what is it, bread? The manna in the wilderness. It came down from heaven. I have come down from heaven, he says. Now, that would be like me saying, and I came down from heaven, and I'm here to tell you this, and you need to come and believe in me. I mean, you'd be throwing rocks at me too, wouldn't you? No wonder the Jews are going to get upset here in a bit. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will 
of him who sent me. That's interesting. The will of him who sent me. Who sent him? God, but he is God. Who sent him? God the Father. He is God the Son. God the Father sends God the Son. They are two separate people, persons, but they are both God. They share the same divine will. Hence, when he does things, he does the Father's will, that which the one who sent him wants him to do. There's no separation, therefore, in the wills. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, i.e. a will of an independent human being, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Wow. That's a little bit of assurance there. Mine doesn't say nothing. It says none. None? Read, read yours. Uh, I shall lose none of all that he has given me. None. And that would be a little bit easier to... Well, it's more people. personal. Just like that earlier phrase, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. Maybe he means by that humans and aliens from the Arcturus Nebula. And <laughs> I don't know what he means by that. But the pronoun usages in, in this section, in John's Gospel, they are very difficult. And the neuter references, as in for things, interpo juxtaposed and interspersed with personal pronouns, he, they, are very interesting. Them, yes, exactly. It's just like everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, none, of all that he has given me, but raise it up, them up, on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He identifies himself as the Son, the one in whom they should believe. And he says that earlier on, back in verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He is identifying himself here as the Son of God, identifying himself as God's gift, God's gracious gift, far surpassing the what-is-it bread, eternal sustenance. Not just the temporary manna in the wilderness, but eternal sustenance. He's, he's identifying himself very highly here. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So our resurrection, our eternal life, is rooted in this belief, faith in him. 
though all who see the Son of Man, the Son, and faith in Him, to make up a verb out of out of faith, believe in Him, faith in Him, may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Well, that didn't sit very well. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? I mean, they're, they're really perplexed about this. I mean, I'm surprised they're not already throwing the rocks. They're shocked at what he said. Maybe they're just struck numb. They may not be entirely hearing all that he's saying, and I think that's probably all that, all of that is a combination of truth. They're hearing it, yes, and it's not sinking in yet what precisely he means. Is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? My gosh, he grew up. Son of Joseph and Mary. We know who he is. We know when they brought him home from the hospital for crying out loud. Well, the not quite the hospital, but the stable. We yeah, he, yeah. We know about all that. We know who he is. Who's he to say when he came down out of heaven? He's been smoking something, friends. How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? And of course Jesus heard this. Jesus answered them. Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. And this is very true. And it's where lots of Christians kind of miss the point. We can't save ourselves and we can't come to God on our own accord unless the Father draws us unless we are drawn to God by God, we can't even want to come to God. But if you find yourself wanting to come to God, <laughs> praise God for that. That's good news. That means you're being drawn. Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. And I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. What's he doing right now? He's teaching them. He's identifying himself as God. And they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learn from the Father comes to me. None, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. And he's already said that that's him. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes, whoever exercises faith, whoever faiths, has eternal life. I and the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna, the what is it bread, in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And that's an interesting statement. The this, what does that relate to? He might very well at that point have been pointing to himself. This. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Not the manna that was given and you died. The manna was given in the wilderness and all the people who ate of it are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, pointing at himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, to us, that just sounds gruesome and icky. But to the Jews, it's even worse. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Flesh bread. That's an interesting mental image there. It's, an, it, it's sometimes identified as a metaphor. I prefer the concept of a type and a shadow, or typology. In scriptural and literary interpretation, particularly in scripture, you can have types and shadows. A uh, type is ca cast its shadow into the past or can cast its shadow into the future. The type is the archetype, the, the, the original, the, the master copy. The shadow is the echo of it. And here you have Jesus identifying himself as the type and the bread the sustenance, the physical sustenance, is a shadow of it. Alright? Whoever eats, this, uh, eats of this bread will live forever. Now, normally when you eat of physical bread, you don't live forever. Those who ate the what-is-it bread in the wilderness, they died. But whoever eats of this bread, the eternal sustenance, will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Himself. His very nature. His very being. His very presence. Because when you are in the presence of someone, when I'm in your presence, Weldon, I'm no more aware of it than when I see you and when I reach out and touch your hand or your skin or your flesh. You are present because you are enfleshed. God was present in the world in Jesus Christ because God was enfleshed, incarnate in human flesh, embodied, enfleshed, just as we are present to each other. So Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh, was present to others in the world. That which I am giving for the life of, my, of the world, the bread that I give, the sustenance that I give for the life of the world is my very presence. The reality of my being here. Alright? If you're thinking in terms of types and shadows, he is the archetype. 
All right, the shadow, he, his presence, God, God's presence is the archetype. The shadow is at that point Jesus, the human being, God in human flesh, and today can be identified in many ways. That which nourishes us spiritually, scripture, hymns, friends, the remembrance of baptism, holy communion. All the means of grace are shadows cast by the archetype God who was incarnate in human flesh, Jesus. Well, this really pissed off the Jews. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They missed it. We've been missing it ever since, but they missed it especially right there, which means that being in his presence is no assurance of understanding. And that's true today. Being in the real presence of Jesus is no assurance of understanding what it is God has for us. We can miss it. I was watching a game show on the Game Show Network. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's where they, they have to guess the, 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 a secret. The panelists, you got like four panelists, all supposedly famous people, and then you've got a host and you've got a guest who comes in and they whisper to the host, huh? Truth or consequences. Truth or consequences, like that. Well, there's a modern one out, though. There's a current one out that has, has a new set of panelists. Like What's My Line. It's very similar to Once My Line, actually, but they whisper they have a secret. Okay. In this program, they would have the... For that one session, they'd have them put on these goggles that are blindfolds, and then they bring out this contestant, and they had one where this woman was a contortionist. And what's her job? What is she doing? Or what, what is her neat... This woman has a neat trick. What is it? I think that's what it was. And then she's a contortionist. They brought up this small box, and she twisted her arms around behind her head and got real small and got inside the box. And, of course, they then had to ask questions, and they each had like a minute or two to ask questions. And if they couldn't narrow it down, then she would win $1,000 in a dinner or something. Well, none of them could guess that she was a contortionist until the very end. And the guy kind of stumbled into it, uh, you know, that, that she was a contortionist. But so often we can be right there, and this is why I'm saying this, they can be right there in the same room with this person, listening to this person speak, asking this person simple yes or no questions, and because they can't see, they don't get it. And then they take off their glasses, and they go, ooh! <laughs> when, they were t when they would guess and guess and guess and guess, and then they take off the glasses, and it was like, oh! oh. And then they, could, of course, couldn't tell their other panelists what it was until it was all over with. But, I mean, it was... The Israelites were right there. Right there, in his presence. And they couldn't guess. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't see. He didn't say, I am Yahweh, but he got as close to saying that as you can get without actually doing it. And in essence, he did by saying, I am. Now, look, what they, look at their response. Look at their response again. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, on the surface, that's what he's done. I am the bread that came out of heaven. Well, that, first of all, should stop them. 
They should, they should realize something else is going on here. In fact, they've been confused about it. We know who this guy is. We know Joseph and his mom and dad. We watched him when they brought him home. What is he talking about? How can he say he came down out of heaven? Why aren't they connecting that then with what he says here, the bread that I will give for the life of the world. If I am the bread that comes out of heaven, the bread that I am giving for the life of the world is my flesh, they ought to be making a connection here. He's talking about something other than literally them eating his carcass. All right. He's speaking beyond that. Why did he use this terminology which almost deliberately throws them off? It's almost as if he's trying to gross them out and make them miss his point. Well, you and I are, with our hindsight, with sure. knowledge and stuff, see it as something beautiful and the bread of life. And right. He is our sustenance. But the Jewish people took it as blasphemy. Right. And in a sense, they ate away at his flesh by not believing in him, by torturing him, by hanging him on the cross. I would say they didn't eat away at his flesh. They rejected it. They rejected that which he offered. Just as a prime fillet will feed me physically, so also Jesus' real presence will feed me spiritually. That's essentially what he's saying. You need me. You need what I have to give you, which is God's presence to live eternally. But he's using language that is almost, I'm not going to say was, almost appears to be designed to throw them off. Now there might be several reasons for that. One of them, and this is one of the ones that has often been used, is because he's not talking to the Jews. He's talking to us. He's talking to later people who would be reading this or hearing it recounted. He's talking to them so that after his death and resurrection, they would understand. He's talking to them not so that they would hear and understand him right then and there, but so that we and others today and over the last 2,000 years would understand that he is our eternal source for all that we need. He told them that at that time as well. well of course he did. You're not going to understand me while I'm here. Essentially correct. That's essentially right. That's one answer. And I actually think that's in part true. I don't think it's all of it. I think that's part of it. He was speaking not just for them, but for us. If he's omniscient, if he is God, then he knows when he's telling them this, that in the year 2006, we would be sitting in a chapel discussing his real presence, because that's what we're talking about, and, and discussing this whole issue. And he's speaking this for us. Now, not just us, and not just for the people who've come since his death and resurrection, but, but for us, and for those who were there. And he knew that one of the ways that God's will, remember he came not to do his own will, the human will, but the Father's will. One of the things that had to happen in the Father's will was he had to die on the cross for our sins. Had he ingratiated himself to the Jews, they never would have pushed to have him executed. 
So it was important for them to misunderstand him. It was important for them to not comprehend at that time who he is. And almost all of the disciples missed it. It's not just these general Jews, it's the disciples who hung around with him for three years. They missed it too. So we shouldn't be surprised that these Jews would miss it. So part of it may be actually designed that they won't understand. There are times when he tells parables. He's asked, why are you telling parables? This is so that they will not understand. Because he knows that some people simply won't understand. And his pals were so stupid, they didn't understand it even after he explained it to them. And frankly, we wouldn't have done any better. So we ought to be a little bit more gracious toward those twelve nuts. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, here Jesus could say, Hey, I'm talking metaphorically now. I don't mean my flesh, literally speaking. I mean metaphorically speaking, or topologically speaking. I mean that I am like that prime rib in that... Just as that prime rib feeds you, so also I feed you spiritually. And through me, God is giving you his grace. Now, I mean, he could have said that. But man, that would have been great. But no, he doesn't. So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't drink blood, not if you're a Jew, ever. That's a big cardinal no-no. Eating the flesh of the Son of Man is bad enough. Drinking his blood is the very worst thing that a Jew can do, is drink blood, period. You just don't do it ever. Not, for, not if you're a good Jew. So what he does is he makes things far worse. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, according to the Jewish rules, if you drink blood, you have no life in you. He's contradicting their traditions, and indeed the Old Testament law, if he is intending to be understood literally. But that's how he speaks it. He speaks it literally. Very truly, verily, verily, is one possible translation, very truly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them." Well, I would imagine so. If you've just eaten him, then he is in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood and abide in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and yet they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. Wow. He comes right out and says it, doesn't he? 
eat me. <laughs> Drink me. Receive into yourself my very presence, that which I have to give to sustain you and forgive you. What is his blood? His blood is the sacrificial offering. If Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, then his blood is the offering that makes restitution for the sins of the world, that is given, that is shed, and taken to the high altar in glory, and sprinkled there to make restitution for the sins of the world. Hence, drinking the blood can be understood as taking into yourself pure, unmitigated forgiveness. The payment for our sins. Eating the flesh can be understood as receiving his real eternal presence, and drinking the blood can be understood as receiving into yourself the pure, unmitigated forgiveness of God, which he then typifies in the shadow of bread and wine in the Synoptic Gospels, because this doesn't happen. In the, in the Gospel of John, he never establishes the Lord's Supper. He does foot washing. They skip over the institution of the Eucharist in John's Gospel. But John's Gospel is replete with Eucharistic image after Eucharistic image after Eucharistic image, and this is the strongest of them. The idea that the bread and the wine are a shadow cast of Jesus' real presence and his sacrifice of himself for the sins of the world. And when we receive him into our lives, when we believe in him, when we faith in, in him, exercise faith in him, we receive him into ourselves, his real presence. He nourishes us, and his forgiveness literally becomes part of us. That's when we drink something, and it goes into us and becomes part of us. And we become part of him, and he becomes part of us. You couldn't be, frankly, any more graphic than Jesus here, any more repugnant to Jewish sensibilities than, frankly, ours than Jesus is doing here. And he is making it very clear that he is sustenance, food, that which nourishes us spiritually, eternally, He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Said, yeah, it is difficult. But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending? to where he was before. Ooh, where he was before? Yes, in his pre-incarnate existence. Before he came down and was that little baby and grew up and became Jesus who's standing before them, he was. He existed. 
then what, if it's difficult, if you're having trouble hearing me say this, what are you going to do when you see me raising up into heaven, ascending? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. Now he's going to start to open it up a little bit. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The physical stuff is useless. It is a spirit that gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones who did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. Mm. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Jesus is dealing with a very difficult situation and a very difficult set of concepts and trying to break through Jewish tradition, Jewish interpretation of the law, and was doing so in a way so as to reach them but most importantly, to reach them after his death and resurrection, when he is ascending. If this message is hard for you now, what's it going to be like when you see me ascending? To return to where I was before. That's when you need this message. That's when you're going to need to understand it. I'm sitting right here. How are you going to have nourishment, sustenance, spiritual growth when I'm not here? I will be here for you. And while he doesn't say it here, we find out about it in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the institution of the Lord's Supper when he takes the bread and says, this is my body, and takes the wine and says, this is my blood. It's a direct connection to what Jesus says here. This is an example of a shadow, to really open this up, a shadow of that which I was talking about back there in John 6. This is my presence. This is my forgiveness. And that can be said, he also says it about the Word. My Word is spirit and life. That's a basic affirmation that the Word of Jesus, the Word of God, Holy Scripture, is a means of grace, a shadow cast of the presence of Jesus. Holy Communion is the archetypical the, 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 of the shadows, the principal one. All right? And it's totally repeatable, like preaching is. You can repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And when you do, it becomes a focus of faith that reconnects us to His presence, His forgiveness, His life, transforming, and by that I mean spiritual life, but you cannot be transformed spiritually unless you are also transformed physically. The transforming presence of Jesus. Apart from me, he says, 
you're dead. Come to me, believe in me, and you have eternal life. And it's as rock-bottom real as if you were eating me. You're receiving me into yourself. When you come to me, when you believe in me. And hence, in Holy Communion, as an example, we, we come forward, we receive the bread, we receive the wine, and in so receiving, acting in faith, focused on Christ and His promise, we are receiving into ourselves again His real, abiding, life-transforming presence. And that's why it's so radically important that we do it. Just as we should read Scripture, as we should fellowship together, as we should give, as we should serve, so also we should remember our baptism, so also we should pray for each other, so also we should receive Holy Communion. Because we need to. Not because we're anything special or good, because we need this living bread that came down out of heaven. We need Jesus. And therefore, because we need, we receive. Our Roman Catholic friends have an understanding of this real presence called transubstantiation, which means that they say that when the bread and the wine are consecrated, their outward appearance is that of bread and wine. But the ontological substance is Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. That's their explanation for how Jesus is really present in Holy Communion. While we accept the idea of real presence, that he is really present here, no less so than the Roman Catholic understanding of real presence, we refuse to make a definition of how he is really present. Their, their interpretation is more literal here than ours is. They want to ensure that no one misses this that this is not symbol, and it's not simple empty memory. It is a reactualizing of his presence, so that just as Jesus was present with them there, so also Jesus is present with us here, and in the Eucharist, and in Scripture, and in prayer, and in all of the means of grace. Jesus is really present. No less present than when he was on this earth, walking the dusty streets with the dusty apostles. Right. Now what they do is their explanation is to ensure that no one misses the idea that no one thinks it's just symbol or it's just significance that these elements of bread and wine signify Jesus' presence. That's called transignification and it's a doctrine that was floated after Vatican II by some Roman Catholic theologians thinking that this made more sense in the modern world than the Thomistic interpretation of transubstantiation. And John Paul II said, Nuh-uh, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Let's stick with Thomas Aquinas' interpretation of the bread and the wine as being transubstantiated, that the substance is transformed 
although the outward appearance remains the same. Its substance is changed. Well, we don't necessarily deny a concept of transubstantiation. We have one. But rather than saying that the bread and the wine's substance is transformed, we say that it is through eating and drinking the act of faith focused on Christ, through eating and drinking the bread and wine, that we are transubstantiated. Our substance becomes the real presence of Jesus. We become his flesh and blood. We become his body. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would agree with that too, by the way. That when a believer comes, and or even an unbeliever, which is why it's drastically important that you believe in his real presence. When, when someone comes and receives the bread and the wine, they are receiving in them themselves Jesus. And in so receiving, they are transformed into the body of Christ, which is scripture. That's what Jesus says right here. When you eat this bread and when you drink this wine, I come into you, and I am part of you, and you are part of me. When you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I am in you, and you are in me. We become the body of Christ. We become the body of Christ through all the acts of faith. Holy Communion is simply the easiest, most visual and active way of communicating that concept. In the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in that concept of transubstantiation. That his flesh and blood are there underneath the outward sign. The outward physical taste and smell of bread and wine. We would deny that 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 is how he is really present. We would believe he is truly, really present. We would simply say, not with that instrumentality of it. Not with that mechanical interpretation. Rather, United Methodists say, it's a holy mystery. We don't know how Jesus is really present. He simply is. And lots of interpretations, like the typological one, which I've presented here, which in all of my searching in the Church Fathers, in all of my searching of interpretations, I have never found a Church Father or a modern scholar articulate in a typological interpretation of the real presence of Jesus from this passage or anywhere. And I, I hesitate to say that this is my contribution. But I've never found anybody who's ever said it before. Before me. And I've looked and looked and looked in the Church Fathers for this interpretation. The person who would most likely say it, the earliest of the people who would most likely come up with this interpretation, would be a fellow by the name of Tertullian. He didn't say it. I've, I've checked all the indices of his commentaries and have read all of his writing on Holy Communion. He never uses a typological interpretation. And one of the reasons why I think that it didn't become strong is because early on in the church there was the importance of understanding the bread and the wine as being his body and blood and a typological interpretation might be misunderstood to lessen the reality of his real presence. But in fact, I think it strengthens it. I think it strengthens it. 
just as Melchizedek is a shadow cast of Jesus from the New Testament. So also, the bread and the wine on the altar is a shadow cast when consecrated, is a shadow cast of Jesus on the cross for us. Of his real presence, of his death, of the sacrifice that he gave for us. Now, it is often interpreted by Protestants, and the Reformers interpreted it this way, that the Roman Catholic Church in every Mass re-sacrifices Jesus. And they don't say that. They don't say, this is a new sacrifice of Jesus. We become united to the Son of God in His sacrifice once and for all on the cross when we come and when we eat and drink. We become reunited to the Son in His sacrifice when we read Scripture and believe. We become united to His Son in His sacrifice when we pray for each other, when we pray for the sins of the world, when we pray for people's needs, when we serve, when we give all the means of grace. We are reunited to the Son of God in His sacrifice for us. In Holy Communion, when we eat and we drink, we are united to His Son in His sacrifice. And the concept of sacrifice is an uncomfortable one for most Protestants because of the misinterpretation both of the official pronouncements of the Church and also by the Church's own failure to properly communicate, the Roman Catholic Church's own failure to properly communicate the idea, which was corrected at Vatican II when they said in point-blank proclamation, we don't re-sacrifice Jesus. Instead, at the altar, we open a gateway to the one eternal sacrifice on the cross. Well, I agree with that. We are united to His Son in His sacrifice for us. And that sacrifice, once and for all, becomes our source of spiritual strength and our forgiveness and our means to come before the Father. Questions? Yeah, I find it uh, interesting that he uses the example of eating and drinking. Elsewhere he says that whatever goes into man from the outside cannot defile him. No. Because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Mm-hmm. So eating and drinking sounds like a poor example. Could very well be a poor example. Right. If you take him on his surface intent or meaning. If you're just hearing what he's saying and not hearing what he is saying. If you're hearing the words but not their meaning. If you're hearing a superficial statement and not the whole course of his proclamation about who he is, and therefore what that means for the world, then yeah, you you could easily get caught in that whole problem of trying to connect the literalness of eating with the spiritualness of eating. Fascinating identification. Now, that's uh, that synoptic? Mark, yeah, it's one of the synoptic Gospels. You have to be a little careful when you identify something that Jesus says either in a parable or in a general teaching in the synoptics with something that Jesus says in John's Gospel because John had a particular way, an approach,
through retelling the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, he had a different approach than, than, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That different perspective sometimes means that the emphasis is differently stressed. But not entirely so, because Jesus actually says here, the flesh is nothing. The outward eating is literally nothing. It's the spirit. And my word is spirit and life. So there is, there, he's saying the same thing. But you've got to be a little careful because their emphasis. John's approach is different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tended to use parables and short little aphorisms and short little sayings. John was more interested in long dialogues like this one, which are highly interpretive and don't lend themselves to easy retelling. This doesn't retell easily. You've got to read it. You've got to really learn it well. Whereas the parables, once you hear it, you can usually rephrase it and retell it and still get the idea across. And the teachings in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are mostly like that. Whereas in John, it's more difficult. It's highly interpretive. And it's written this way by John and edited by his successors to get the interpretation across. Uh, one scholar says, and I don't think he's far from being right, I think he's quite correct, that the entirety of John's Gospel is an interpretation of the significance of all the means of grace, but especially of Holy Communion. The real presence of God in Jesus Christ in the world. You can see it at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew begins with the proclamation that there's going to be a kid. And it starts with Jesus' birth. Luke begins with John the Baptist, the proclamation of John the Baptist's birth. And then what that tells us then about Jesus and his birth. John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is the whole essence of Eucharistic theology. Jesus is really here right now. night in which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. He met with his disciples in a room, celebrated the Passover Seder, and took a loaf of bread and gave thanks to you and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to you and gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. By Your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, 
and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Copyright by Dr. Gregory S. Neal, all rights reserved. Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.